This is Cass Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. On Cass Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cass Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to Cast Club Radio. Thanks for hanging with us on this Saturday afternoon. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. Thanks for being here. We are right around the corner from Daylight Savings Time, right? Tomorrow? Have you guys set your clocks? Are you ready? Are you prepared? I usually just wait for my phone to switch over, and then it reminds me that every other clock is different. Yes, we're a little <laughs> bit spoiled these days. I remember, you know, back back in the days without that, you had to manually set your clocks back. But yeah, we get, we get a little spoiled with the smartphones. <laughs> for Daylight Savings Time, the problem, of course, is in the morning, we're all sleep deprived by an hour, but we get that hour on the back end of the day and already it's been exciting to watch the sun come and stay up until 5 30 or 6 we're excited because it means baseball and barbecue is around the corner i know i love it especially i get up early in the morning so just the prospect of it being light out a little bit earlier when i get to work just makes me happy puts a smile on my face ironically national napping day is also just three days away on march 13th <laughs> so you have an excuse to make up for that hour you well, left. Well, it's because it takes you it takes you a couple of days to kind of get used to it. And two days later seems appropriate after daylight savings. I think so. Yeah. So what else is going on in the news today? Well, in the news, uh, recently it was announced that our friends at Johnny Walker, at, owned by Diageo, one of the largest spirits companies on the planet, have announced a new product called Jane Walker. And it's designed to be marketed and appeal to female drinkers to get them into scotch. I love this. I'm looking at the bottle and I, I love the design. And I just think, yeah, scotch is kind of a an alcohol that has been marketed towards men for a long time. I like that they're trying to include women, even though I know that it, apparently they got some backlash on that. Yeah, they got some backlash. There are uh, the purists who don't want to see anything change. And they got backlash from females who were saying, you know, I don't need to be marketed to as a special part of the consumer segment. I don't need to be told it's okay for me as a woman to drink this product. I just want to drink a product that I like. So they're getting it from both ends. It's kind of the first real major launch they've had in a few decades. And it'll be interesting to see the kind of feedback they get in the market and whether there's pushback at the bar level uh, by bartenders who don't want to go down this path. Yeah. What do you think, Lydia? Do you find it offensive? No, I, I think we're just in that age, unfortunately, where we're all a little sensitive, I want to say, that either way, this is kind of that that era where you're probably going to get complaints either way. So committing to something that your brand believes in is what's important. I think at the end of the day, knowing your customer and knowing sticking behind your brand is is what you do. And yeah, I, don't, I see nothing wrong with this. Well, I want to know, is it the same liquid or is it a different blend, different flavor profile that's based on some type of feedback they got that uh, uh, maybe women like a certain profile of flavor versus others? Or is it simply a different label? That's yeah, where you might get yourself there in trouble. you'd have problems, I think. Like the Doritos that they thought that women wanted because they were quieter. It's like, okay, no, I don't need a quieter chip. No, I'm loud. <laughs> I was eating chips just before we got on the show, okay? I will do it unapologetically. Yeah, that's kind of my point is, is this the exact same liquid and they just have slapped a, a label on it? And if that's the case, that seems fairly transparent and nothing new to offer as opposed to, hey, here's something that we think has a different flavor profile and we're going to target this for a different demographic. That to me would make more sense. Absolutely. We'll have to do some more investigating and find out. First hand. 
Okay, the first the first one of us to get our hands on bottles, we'll, uh, we'll open them up and we'll do some tasting. <laughs> yes, How's that market research. Next up on the list, uh, we have our good friends at Starbucks here in uh, Seattle. They've opened their first fancy reserve store, and it includes upscale coffee brands like Blue Bottle and Intelligentsia, but they're also going aggressively into the cocktail movement. And they're going to include this in 20 to 30 new roasteries planned around the world, including Milan, New York, Tokyo, and Chicago. And uh, as I was reading some of the analysts' uh, questions in the stock market, uh, they're interested in these models moving forward, but they want to know at what cost. How much is it costing to open one of these huge reserve retail stores? And what are the sales they're generating versus the smaller 1,500 or 2,000 square foot footprint you see on the corner? And what's the ROI in terms of spend versus dollar sales per square foot. I also noticed that they are talking about heavily moving into the cocktail side because they want to cap- capture what they call the entire day of coffee to cocktails. So in the morning you get your coffee and in the evening you get your cocktails. And it's a way for them to uh, generate more revenue throughout more hours of the day, which I think is probably the right the right move for them. When we were discussing some of the trends that we're going to see emerge in 2018, wasn't this sort of like coffee shops to bars one of those trends where more coffee shops are adapting that, hey, we're not just half of the day. We can serve all day long. Plus, coffee actually ends up going pretty well with a lot of cocktails. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you see it at the local neighborhood, kind of independently owned coffee shop, uh, where they're expanding. They're getting a beer and wine license. And in the evening, you're going to see them bringing in acoustic guitar sets and open mic nights, and you can have a glass of wine or local craft beer. This is a step further. This is Starbucks saying, we're going to have a full-on cocktail bar with spirits, full cocktails, and uh, really go to the, the ultimate step, which is all the cocktail offerings and paired with the coffees. It's a great way for them to do the, the upsell, especially if they're trying to sell finished product to go like bags of premium roast coffees and flavors and other accoutrements to make cocktails at home. I will say I worked Starbucks for three years and we had people that would not leave the store that were already hanging out all day long. And I think this is a brilliant idea to capitalize on upselling them something else and keeping them there even longer if it's at nighttime. That's right. That's right. So we need to meet up at one of these locations and do a recording for the show remotely. I would I would definitely be like, man, this is going to be like the market research <laughs> week on the show. I love it. There so I go. think that's a really uh, good right, idea. We'll this next story, I'm not so sure, is a great idea. Yeah. So you're not in the glitter beer. I don't no. understand, Mara. What, what's wrong with glitter beer? Just saying that out loud. Yeah. Ugh. I'm just picturing <laughs> sipping on beer and getting like glitter stuck in your teeth. Good luck. Yeah, well, this comes to us from our friends at Vice Magazine, and glitter beer is now a real thing. And they ask, who doesn't love glitter? It's nearly impossible to get it out of your clothing at night, your hair, but it's festive as hell. That's the quote they have. So, uh, Everything from sparkly cupcakes to glitter lattes, and now we've got multiple breweries making glitter beer, including in Durango, Colorado, Inglewood, California, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, a few others who have all said, we're going to add glitter to the beer, make it bold, make it shimmer, make it shiny. And I don't know how I feel about this. I honestly don't. Mm. This, this for me is uh, is jumping the shark, to use an old reference from, from TV days. Absolutely. I would think that what I associate glitter with is like the 1980s, maybe the early 1990s of having it on uh, eyeshadow palettes. And I don't know, you used to be able to put it in your hair, I remember as a kid. And even that, 
was, you're right, it just never comes out. And now I'm wondering, now we're going to make this edible. And now, or I know it's already an edible thing, but now we're going to consume even more of this? Seems well, not like a good idea. It's funny that you mentioned the 80s, 90s throwback because one of the people they interviewed, Erica Dionda, head brewer at Minnequa Brewing Company, named one of her beers Lisa Frank. After oh, the old yep. uh, trapper keeper that were like neon colors and everything. So, so much Lisa Frank I think Frank that's the goodness. vibe she's going for. I could absolutely see that. Well, then you're going to need neon colored beer at the same time. It's going to be, it's <laughs> oh, going to need to be all the shades of neon rainbow with glitter. Well, Can't do it. I just, I, I always ask the question when someone asks me, you know, to think about consuming something. And that the question is this, by itself, would you put this thing in your body? So yeah. just because you have a teaspoonful of glitter would you take that teaspoonful of glitter and just shove it in your mouth and swallow it <laughs> no or is it only because you've mixed it in beer that it now is palatable for you to consume that to me it makes no sense i absolutely. i'm not gonna just sit and eat plastic <laughs> and just because something is quote quote edible doesn't mean you should eat it right exactly right yeah <laughs> at least that's how i view it so <laughs> Uh, I will take a pass on glitter beer, <laughs> which is good news for those people who want to try it because it means there's more glitter beer out there for them. Out there for them. <laughs> yeah. Coming up on Cast Club Radio later in the hour, we get to chat with head winemaker and proprietor of Kitsky Cellar, Seth Kitsky. He's also the owner of Upside Down Wine. We're going to chat with him. But first, up next on Cast Club Radio, hockey is coming to Seattle. That's right. An NHL team could be here by 2020. That got us to thinking, how do sports and alcohol mix? Which fans are the best and worst drinkers? We'll tell you next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks for hanging out with us on this fine Saturday. In just a little bit, we're going to talk to head winemaker and proprietor Seth Kitsky of Kitsky Cellars and Upside Down Wine. But first, hockey is coming to Seattle, people. We might have an Woo! NHL. Yes, thank you. NHL <laughs> team here in 2020. Things look like they are a full go. We still need the formal approval from the NHL. But Oakview Group, Jerry Bruckheimer, going to be the minority share owner. David Bonnerman going to be the majority shareholder of the team. And they've already held their season ticket drive last week. They opened it up on Thursday at 10 a.m. Within, what was it, 12 minutes, they had their per, they had their goal of 10,000 season ticket deposits. Within two hours, they had 25,000. And a day later, Friday afternoon, not even 48 hours later, they capped it off at 33,000 and said, no, we can't take any more. We opened a waiting list on Saturday. On Saturday. So clearly, there's a huge demand for hockey yeah. in Seattle. And for perspective, it took Las Vegas, who just got the Golden Knights recently, nine months to get to, I think, sixteen or 17,000 yeah. tickets sold. So Seattle really showed up. They absolutely <laughs> did. They said, hey, we are, we are still a little bitter over the Sonics and losing that team, but it doesn't matter. Whether it's we disagree, agree on where the stadium should be, doesn't matter. We're going to band together. Sports brings people together, part of the reason why I love them. And so it was really cool to see the community come together. But it got us thinking about sports fans and drinking because a lot of times sports and drinking, they go hand in hand, right? Yes. Oftentimes they do, yeah. <laughs> and Justin, so we were able to find, what do you know, a survey from detox.net that looks at drinking and the average sports fan in America. Who do you guys think, who would you guess is the biggest drinking sports fan? Which sport do you think has the fans that consume the most alcohol? 
in the U.S., if you're going to look at this, you have to examine what's the biggest sport. The biggest sport still is football. So if we look at the data, the data probably tells us it's football has the highest average drink consumption associated with fan base. You would be correct, sir, except it also ties with hockey. Hockey. 3.1 average drinks consumed during that sporting event. Pro football and hockey tied. Pretty interesting. I'm surprised on the list we don't see NASCAR because it's <laughs> an all-day thing. <laughs> and if you look at the demographics at NASCAR, there's a lot of beer consumed at NASCAR races. Maybe someone did not think to add that to this list because I would, I would agree. I would think that that would be high on the list. So let's run through uh, the top sports and consumption. UFC, MMA coming in third, or I guess tie, after the tie, they come in second with 2.8 per sporting event. Baseball is in uh, third. 2.6, tied with college football. Finally, rounding us out, we've got basketball at 2.4 average drinks per sporting event. And at the very bottom, soccer with 2.2, which was really shocking to that me. That surprised me. But I'm thinking of like the international soccer hooligans. Yes. Like crazy this must fans be flooding the streets. MLS soccer, because European Soccer League and International Soccer League would probably, World Cup would be a little bit different than 2.2 drinks. I think if you ask the question, how many drinks did they consume before the game, soccer would be number one. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're so, the fan base for soccer is so into the games while the games are going on that they don't want to lose that energy. But True. do not get between them and a beer before the match starts. <laughs> I would tend to agree with that too because how much of the how much of the game is you're standing on your feet, you're interacting, whether you're cheering or yeah, you have a, a coordinated Emerald City supporter cheer that you need to do with that requires your hands. You can't really hold a beer very well if you're that into the game and interactive with the game. That's right. And I was surprised that baseball's so low. Baseball's such a long game. Mm -hmm. There's so many times in the game to go yeah. grab a beer or, or drink that I'm, I'm surprised it actually is uh, not higher than hockey. It's very true. There's a lot more breaks in the action where you feel okay getting up to go get a beer during a baseball game than maybe, say, like basketball or football. Hockey, though, I would say is timed almost perfectly to have those three drinks because it's like you get one before the game and then you have two intermissions. So it's kind of very well paced to get this 3.1 drinks, like eat one per each period. Well, they asked the question in the survey a different way. They asked the question then, the average number of drinks consumed per hour Mm -hmm. The average number of drinks consumed per hour, hockey, jumped up to number one, 1 1.4 per hour. And professional football dropped to number three, an average of one drink per hour of watching your sport. Wow. And I guess that would also be maybe because hockey still is a fast-paced time sport. Football games can last, especially nowadays with instant replay and uh, what is a catch discussions. Your games can last a long time hockey for the most part it's like there's not really timeouts there's not much they take a few commercial stoppage breaks but because tv tv deals aren't huge in the nhl they don't have tons of commercials so they really are more of a fast it's more of a fast-paced game you've got your 20 minute intermissions but i would see i could see how people would consume too much or too quickly. <laughs> well, hockey is almost always exclusively at night as well. And uh, if you look at football, professional football, you know, on the West Coast here, we've got some early games that are starting at 1030 in the morning. 
and uh, some that are at one in the afternoon. And you can be done with your football game watching on TV and still have time to go out and mow the lawn. Yeah, I thought this was interesting, too. They looked at patterns of drinking if your team is winning or if your team is losing. So the percentage of people and fans who would drink more if their team performed poorly, what fan base do you think is number one? If their team performed poorly. Yep, so they're turning to uh, beverages. Uh, I think it's football. Yes, absolutely. Pro football, yeah, way ahead out in front at 25%. College football coming in second at 197 And hockey falling all the way down to sixth on that list at 8.8. They're just pretty much there no matter what. They, they, they're, uh, winning or losing isn't really affecting their drinking. The one that was surprising to me was if your team is performing well, are you more likely to drink more? And mm-hmm. soccer jumped to number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that has to do with, like you said, consumption before or after after the game. So here's the question. They then break it down by gender. If your team is doing well, who's going to drink more, men or women? If they do well, yes. I'm going to say women. Yes, by five points. Ooh. Women yeah. drink more if, if their team is performing well. That's interesting. Interesting I data. I wouldn't have thought about that. Interesting data. That tells you in a market where you think your team is going to be good for the year or bad for the year, how to begin to market to the consuming demographic. This is really fascinating data. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about it like that, but that's very true. So on the flip side, is it true that if they're performing poorly, men are more likely to drink if their team is mm, just not having a good day? That's right. So let's pick a market for football, like let's say, I don't know, Cleveland. Oh, my gosh. More towards men or women. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely towards men. Your your team's performing pretty poorly when you don't win any games. So that's what that's happened right. last year. couple of years. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> Flip side, if you want to market to the folks in New England, the data here says you should be marketing more to women because they're more likely to consume alcohol if the team is on a winning streak. Maura can tell us if that's accurate. Would you, <laughs> as an actual Patriots fan, Boston native, are they marketing have, to women enough over there? I have celebrated a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, bottom line, I'm excited for hockey. This entire community pretty excited for hockey as it comes to Seattle here in the next couple of years. 2020, perhaps the very first puck drop in Seattle. Next up on Cast Club Radio, it's head winemaker and proprietor Seth Kitsky of Kitsky Cellars and Upside Down Wine. How he went from professional snowboarder to winemaker. It's a pretty interesting story. Don't miss it. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thank you so much for being here with us. Right now, we are joined by our friend, head winemaker at Kinsky Cellars, and also the owner of Upside Down Winery. Seth, it's been a long road to get to Upside Down. Can you kind of tell us a little bit of the backstory behind Upside Down? Yeah, so um, basically it all started, like, I think in, like, 2006 or 2008, there's, like, a really, there's, like, an old label that my parents did that had a picture of me snowboarding on it and so that's kind of where like it all started I actually found like three bottles of those I had a store in West Seattle the other day so I bought them all because I haven't seen them in like years you know so I was like oh I gotta keep these but basically I used to snowboard like semi-professionally for ride snowboards and traveled and did a bunch of that stuff and then just kind of got older and had a couple knee surgeries and ankle surgery and 
figured I wanted to be able to walk and play golf later in life. So I was like, what else can I do, you know? And I had been growing grapes my whole life. So that's kind of how I paid for my winters when I would basically take off from college and then just travel and film snowboarding. So at basically at a point, I was like, I want to go to school and learn how to make wine. Um, because there's not too many people that know how to grow their own grapes and make wine, basically. So, uh, so uh, what is so your what's your first memory of being in the wine business? How old were you when you when you started in the, in the family business? Oh, so so it's weird. It's like I was never in the wine business. I would say like I was on the complete other end of the spectrum. Like like I guess in in a way I was in it, but like we had like 150 acres of cherries and apples, and then we planted most of our vineyard in 2000. And so I want to say I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I just was, I like to tell my dad, it was like, you know, I was like slave labor in the vineyard <laughs> because I was just young, and he was like, oh, we put a roof over your head. That's why you work. And Sounds I remember familiar. like complaining to my friend, uh, my friend Tyler one time about not getting paid, and that got me in trouble. But <laughs> I would say like right after that, he did start giving paying me from it. So, so you, were, <laughs> so you were 12 or 13 working the fields of the uh, newly planted grapes this is all in eastern washington yeah yeah so we have uh one really small vineyard um on candy mountain which is uh right next to red mountain right outside of richland and so there's probably like two acres of grapes there and uh pretty small and that's where like the tasting room is and then uh um we have another uh, vineyard that's out in uh, Yakima Valley um, called, um, we call it Dead Poplar Vineyard because it's an, our old cherry orchard and it just has, used to have a ton of dead poplars around it. Now most of them have fallen over, but now there's like one or two. So <laughs> so between Kitsky yeah. Cellars, which is one of your brands, and uh, Upside Down, how many cases of production are you all making every year? Um, it's still pretty small. Um, we're just probably around 2000 cases in total a year. And that's with like, you know, um, 300 of that being our rosé. And then, um, we're planning to actually double that rosé production for, uh, this next year. It just kind of took a long, it took, it took a long time because, uh, um, we make our rosé out of Nebbiolo mm-hmm. and it's the only um, rosé of Nebbiolo in the state. Mm-hmm. It's just not a very common varietal. It's uh, There's like 20 acres or something planted in the state. But basically like a few more acres just became available from people, um, you know, finally wanting out of their contracts or whatever. So why is that so I'm such excited a, about that. Yeah, why is that such a, a uncommon thing? Um, Nebbiolo is just... Uh, it's a pain in the butt to grow. It's uh, like in, in Piedmont where it's really from in Northern Italy area, it's like they, uh, it's really high elevation. They get a lot of fog. And so uh, it does ripen up and get warm in the summertime, but uh, they get a lot of protection from sunshine where Nebula is a really big berry and like thin skinned grape. So it sunburns really easy. So over there, they just, they don't have to worry about that as much. Whereas here in Washington, you know, Eastern Washington, we get so much sun and, you know, it's so hot that uh, we kind of have to do a lot more to to guard the fruit from that. Mm -hmm. So like, um, 
instead of having your just normal like trellis system that's um, you'll see in a lot of vineyards with the nebbiolo will grow it like straight straight up so it goes like almost 10 feet in the air more more kind of like a, a wall of vines that grows straight up that way you get shade that protects like the rows next to it hmm. and then yeah the, and then uh, mike andrews the guy that we get it from in horse heaven hills he also has like misters that come on if it gets above like 90 degrees so it looks so like a hops like a farm. lot of what's that looks like a hops farm yeah no it's uh it's not quite as tall as that but yeah it's it's it, that's what i would say it looks similar more similar to than you know your your normal vineyard so how are you uh, finding customers? How are they buying? If you're making 2,000 cases a year as a small family producer, how are they getting your wine? Yeah. So I think like with where we're at, most of it has been really like sought out by, you know, your winos or more of your wine geeks, I, I would say, <laughs> uh, because because we are smaller. But like our, like our rosé last year got like 90 points in wine enthusiasts. And then uh, won a double gold at the San Francisco International Wine Awards, which is like the U.S.'s biggest contest. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I mean, those things definitely help put you on the map for those people that are searching out, you know, different varietals or uh, just a lot of people, you know, kind of want that smaller producer feel where it's really, you know, it's made and grown by the same person and, you know, they're... Um, I guess in it's more of a boutique feel versus like, you know, a very big um, tank farm, you know, that's kind of producing the wine for you at a mass, mass volume, which isn't, isn't, has nothing, nothing bad about it. I don't want that to sound bad, but I mean, that is how you're going to keep your prices down, you know, be more affordable, make more wine and get it in basically more retail outlets Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, people really coming to you. You're a second generation now winemaker, I guess, between you and your folks and, and uh, you and your wife are getting ready to open your own place in Oregon. Is this something you see your kids doing and creating a third generation of winemakers in the family? I can, I mean, I can only hope. I mean, for me, it was, I, so, so my dad was never a winemaker. So before I made the wines, Charlie Hoppus that makes Fidelitas wines on Red Mountain was our winemaker. Good wine. Yeah, no, he makes amazing wine. So I kind of grew up around him. And then before I kind of took over our winemaking duties for Kitsky and Upside Down, I worked with like Brennan Layton and Charles Smith at K Vintners. And then, and then also worked with Brian Carter up in Woodville. So, and then I also went to school at the Northwest Wine Academy, which is actually in West Seattle. And they have a pretty cool little winemaking program. But that was like later on in life that I was around like the romance of like winemaking. Because before that, it was just all, it was kind of all just agriculture to me because I grew up with cherries and apples. And then all of a sudden I was doing grapes. And I knew that grapes made wine, but, you know, I was, wasn't super into wine at a young age. Like, you know, say say a kid that grows up in France where wine is, you know, food it's part of the agriculture and you 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 have it with every meal starting you know when you're eight years old so you know i didn't grow up with uh with that side of things so but i mean i would love for my kids to grow up with that and develop like a relationship with wine at like an age where they they see you know how cool it is to be able to make something from start to finish and be hands-on throughout the growing process and um, be you know a third generation winemaker and and that sort of sort of thing, because not too many people have that. How do we find how do how do the listeners find out more about Kitsky Cellars or about Upside Down Wine? You can either the websites like Kitsky Cellars or UpsideDownWine.com, 
or you can you can follow like Kitsky Family Vineyards on Instagram and Upside Down Wine on Instagram. And me and my wife actually just started a, kind of a different thing called Us Doing Wine because uh, we lived in Seattle for the last seven years and most of our friends are over there. And then we just moved back to the vineyards in eastern Washington. So they were like, you know, like, what do you guys even do? We know you do wine, but what does that mean? <laughs> and so uh, so we kind of, we started like an Instagram called Us Doing Wine, where you can kind of follow like the day-to-day and like what it's like to own your own small winery from pruning and being in the vineyard to um, different winemaking and pouring events and wine dinners and that sort of stuff. I like that. It's like really that. cool. Yeah, behind the scenes look at it. Us doing wine. <laughs> well, before we go, yeah. I got to say, Seth, uh, when we were first planning Heritage Distilling Company and in the construction and opening phases, I met your, your mom and dad and uh, got to know yeah. them a little bit. And, and uh, we actually bought some wine from them so we could run it through the stills to make some brandy and um, test some equipment, do some calibration. And they just always been the nicest people and uh, just appreciate the fact that you all are, you know, doing the small business family thing here in Washington and now expanding into Oregon. And um, it, I've just always had an appreciation for the folks at Kitsky Cellar. So you're good people. Awesome. I, re- I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm still, uh, I still talk to my parents all the time and say, you guys should have opened up a tasting room in Gig Harbor right next to them. <laughs> well, we could talk about that, that offline. About that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, but, thank- um, no, thank you. That's that's. A, I appreciate that. All right. Thanks for joining us thank today. Thank you so much, Seth. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Up next, Distiller Dane, he's always got his ear to the ground. He knows what you should be eating, what you should be drinking, and what you should be doing this weekend for fun. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, one of our favorite people on the line, Distiller Dane, is going to share another top five with us. Hey, Dane, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How's everyone doing over there? We're doing pretty good. We're getting geared up for daylight savings time tomorrow. Oh, no. Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> Do you get thrown off by the time change or bounce back pretty quickly? I, I get a little thrown off, but I usually recuperate a day or two later. Yeah. Well, good. All right. Well, your top five is certainly going to help us with the time adjustment period. What you got going on? All right, number one on my list. This is a new brewery that I've been visiting in Seattle the last couple of weekends. Um, they are called Urban Family Brewing. Oh, yeah. They're kind of up there right past Fisherman's Village up in Seattle. They have a really good list of sour ales and a nice list of hazy IPAs. And I haven't had one bad beer there yet. Everything they make is super delicious. What's been your favorite? Their sours are definitely the, some of my favorites I've had so far. They also, last weekend, just released a collaboration of a hazy IPA that has, was brewed with purple carrots and has this bright Ooh. purple color to it. It's pretty interesting. Sounds good. Yeah. Do any of their beers have glitter? <laughs> I was going to ask. None of their beers have glitter, but I have seen the glitter beer videos going around on the internet so far. I have yet to try some of it. Are you in or out on that real quick? I think I'm out. Yeah. I think I would be down to try it once, but I don't know if I necessarily need glitter floating around in all my beer. <laughs> All right, what do we get with number two? Uh, Number two is a new TV show I came on. It actually came out a few years ago, I think, three or four years ago. It's called Trapped. 
It's actually based in Iceland, um, which is a place that I've been wanting to visit for a long time. Um, it was actually filmed there, and it's from an Icelandic TV company. Then it got picked up by BBC, and now it's been airing uh, on Amazon Prime lately. And they did get booked for a second season, which will be coming out a little later. Um, but it has all Icelandic a- actors, and it's kind of like a murder drama show. Really good show overall. There's about eight to nine episodes in the season, and I would definitely recommend checking it out. All right, good. Got a new uh, show to binge, binge watch. <laughs> All right, number three. Number three on my list. I'm a huge fan of gin, and especially gin and tonics. And I actually got gifted this uh, a few weekends ago. And it's actually a gin and tonic body wash. What? What? I need to get that for Lydia. Yeah, she loves gin, too. It smells like a gin and tonic. It makes you smell like a gin and tonic, which could be good or bad in some situations. But I am calling it the new shower beer. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> don't get pulled over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't get pulled over or else you should have a good explanation. Do you keep lemons or limes or olives in the shower with you? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tried that yet. I'll work on a couple, couple recipes with that and see how it comes out. I've, I've never heard of anyone emerging from the shower extra dirty. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number yeah, four. Yeah, maybe I'll make some green olives in there next time. <laughs> Pimento and blue cheese. Ew. All right. <laughs> <laughs> number, number four. Uh, number four is actually a radio segment that I always listen to every Saturday. It's called Positive Vibrations on KEXP 90.3. Um, Kid Hops runs this uh, every Saturday. It's a three-hour program from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Um, I don't know what your guys' Saturday rituals are, but it's uh, wherever I am, it's always the first thing I turn on. And it's uh, a good three-hour segment of just reggae music. Even if you aren't fully into reggae, I would definitely recommend checking it out. They play everything from classics to new age to all the subgenres in between. Um, and he plays a lot of music that he's collected in his own collection as well. Good to start off Saturday with some good tunes. All right, what's number five on your list? Wrapping well, it up. Before we go to number five, I want to know, do you listen to three hours of reggae while taking the gin and tonic showers? <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to try that, but I'll let you know how it goes on the next top five. Maybe we'll make a list. All right. Okay. Lastly, number five. Number five. Um, this is one of my favorite websites. Um, there's only a few that I've been following for a long time, but this is one I definitely check into almost every other day or weekly if possible. And I've been going to it for almost the last eight to ten years, and it's called theawesomer.com. Mm. <laughs> and they have basically, when you go there, there's just blocks of links that you kind of click onto. I and mean, they have everything from text, text savvy gadgets to gifts to videos, movie trailers, like music, games, there's inventions. They usually have like quite a few Kickstarters and things like that on there, and experiments, like a bunch of art and design, funny things, pretty much plethora of anything and everything. Um, they get a lot of things first before you'd find them anywhere else as well. They even have a brand new shop on there that you can go and purchase things directly off of. Nice. And the, Aws- the Awesomer has featured several of our products, including the Advent Calendar at Christmas, and uh, they, they do have a wide variety. Yes, they've been good supporters stuff. of heritage. Yeah, well, they've, they've got good, good taste then, so it's perfect. All right, Dane. Thanks for your top five this week. Thank you, sir. Back to work. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, before we get out of here, uh, of course, we've got a great new cocktail recipe. And this week's, I like this, it's a little nod to the spring forward, right? Yeah, well, by the time the evening rolls around, we're going to be extra tired because we've lost an hour of sleep <laughs> and we woke up earlier than we thought our body was ready for. So we're going to have something we call the coconut dream. And it requires one ounce of our heritage distilling coffee vodka one ounce of our coconut vodka, some real coffee, an ounce of cream, and an eighth of a teaspoon of coffee grounds. So stuff that you probably should have in your house no matter what. And uh, here's how we make it. Fill a glass with ice, 
add all the liquid ingredients. Liquid ingredients, again, are an ounce of coffee vodka, an ounce of coconut vodka, an ounce of regular coffee, and an ounce of cream. Uh, stir it together and then put a light dusting of coffee grounds across the top and uh, you're good to go. I wouldn't think to use the grounds like that, but that mm -hmm. sounds awesome. Just a little bit. It's yeah. better than glitter. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so this week we have another one, which is a riff on a traditional old-fashioned. And we're going to use coffee again in this cocktail. And we're going to grab two ounces of our Elk Rider bourbon, one ounce of coffee, a half ounce of simple syrup. And remember, you can make simple syrup at home. It's equal parts sugar and water. Uh, you cook them on the stove, let it cool. Uh, so in this case, you might start with a cup of sugar and a cup of water, cook it, get it to be liquid, set it aside. And then you've got simple syrup to use for other cocktails. So two ounces of the bourbon, one ounce of coffee, half ounce of the simple syrup, two dashes of orange bitters. And you're going to pour the simple syrup and bitters into a tumbler, fill that glass with ice, add the bourbon and the coffee, stir it. And you might dust this with uh, another small amount of the coffee grounds or white chocolate shavings. The white chocolate shavings do very well in this cocktail that we call the coffee old-fashioned. I like it. It's quite good, I can assure you. Well, for these recipes, as always, they can check out your website, right? HeritageDistilling.com. Yeah. Of course, you can always follow along with the podcast. We've also got a link on CairoRadio.com. Just follow the podcast tab to Cast Club Radio. All of the episodes are there. Yeah, so go to Cast Club Radio on Facebook and uh, Instagram. We're also on Instagram. You can click through to Cast Club Radio on our webpage at HeritageDistilling.com. And as always, we ask you to go to iTunes and rate Cast Club Radio. Perfect. Well, everybody, just watch your clocks. Make sure that you also honor National Sleeping or National Napping Day. That's coming up on the 13th. And we'll see you back here next week for St. Patrick's Day. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling, part of Cairo Weekends on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM.